I had a blood draw this morning for my doctor and I did the other uh, day. I still have a bruise. Oh God, you are so tender. But I drank so much water this morning because the last two times I've done a blood draw, she struggled. It was like sludge trying to get it out of my body. So she was like, you eat too cookies. My God. <laughs> so this morning I literally was drinking. I must have drank a gallon of water. So um, anyway, I, I have my big water bottle with me right here. Look at see. Mm -hmm. But I, I do want to do a little shout out to Sarah Bernstein and Study for Obedience, which won the Giller Prize this week. Mm. Um, and, and she is also up for the Booker for the book Prize. Guy. Yeah. So congrats to her. And actually, when we're recording this, which is on Wednesday, tonight are the um, National Book Awards. Oh, right. So congratulations to the winners of the National Book Award. Yes. We don't yes. know who you are because we're recording it in the past. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> but you know who you are. So congratulations to you. But we're with all of you in spirit and good luck to all the nominees. <laughs> yes. On today's episode, we have Greg Marshall, who wrote the book Leg, um, who is so delightful and so lovely. And you'll hear it on this episode, but like among the first things I say to him is how handsome he is, <laughs> which is so ridiculous. Yeah, I, I have to be honest. I burst out laughing when I was listening back to it. It's very quick, but it is a gush. And it's so sweet. It's so I, sweet. It, I, I think like true, like he just looks so serious in his author photo. It's in black and white. Like there's just like it's just different when you sort of see someone in person. Um, and <laughs> I don't know. I just had. <laughs> A little word vomit. And just so I've apologized for my indiscretion off air. And he was very flattered and it, it, he didn't mind. Very also, handsome. everybody go follow him on Instagram. He's very handsome. So he is. He's very, he's very handsome and he's very but charming. At, at the end of the episode, he says he looks forward to continuing to listen to the podcast, which was so kind of him, even just to say. But he has has actually done that because he's reached out about a lot of different episodes or yeah. commented and he's so he's such a great supporter and and i really appreciate that but this is an episode that we recorded it's one of the first episodes that we recorded it is it is and i and i have to say and and it, like listening to it i was like wow this is really in a way getting our sea legs a little bit mm -hmm. but but i also just have to say in terms of the book you know Seen as this one of our first episodes, we read this so long ago, but the book has really stuck with me yeah. so much. And listening to the episode again brought it all back. And I, I have to really say, like, it's really been one of my favorite books of the year. I know. I was thinking the same thing. I was listening to bits and pieces. And I was like, oh, right. That person in his life or that character from the book or this story. And it really came flooding back to me. And I um, forgot how much I loved it. It's so it. great. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so Greg is a, is a big supporter of the podcast and listen. So he's clearly heard me talk about that. I listen to books, to audiobooks and podcasts on higher speeds. And last week when I posted my screenshot that I was listening to the Barbara Streisand memoir audiobook, mm -hmm. he totally read me for Phil on my Instagram story. He replied and said, I'm noting the absence of your listening speed here, <laughs> which is so funny, which was clearly just an accident because I'm loud and proud telling everybody that I'm listening to her on 2X because she reads her book nice and slowly. Do you think that she just probably recorded it in her basement, right? Or something? I don't know. She, I don't think she went into like, you know, recording studio. I think she was probably like, look, I'm not leaving my house. I'm going to go down to my store in the basement. And maybe it's record. so big. I I'm know. Like, I did a workout this morning by, by picking up and down. Yeah. 
little shoulder action. Nobody, I'm showing this to you. Nobody could see. I'm like picking up. No one could see the visual. Yes, yes, he is. But if that's Um, how you're doing your weights, you're doing it wrong. Listen, no, it's better than nothing. Every little thing, every little holding holding the Barbara book in my in my arms is is more exercise than not. During lockdown, I was doing a boot camp class. I was literally pulling bricks from the backyard and doing stuff with bricks because I nobody had weights yet. Like no one, like I certainly I didn't. Good for you. Getting creative. You do what you have to do. So you do what you have to do. Yeah. Um also back to leg, not back to leg. We're talking this is all yeah, speaking of legs. Speaking of legs, the Greg's book leg. First of all, everyone should have a book title that rhymes with their name. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right? I'm Mine's going to be called Sweat. Yes. <laughs> but actually, Speaking that's of a, working out. That's a Garbage Pail Kid, Brett Sweat, for those who know Garbage Pail Kids. Jason I'm Talking Mason. to you, Adam Malice. Jason the Mason. Jason Mason. And, and well, speaking of Greg Leg, not Greg's legs, Greg's Leg, the book, the Washington Post just named it one of the best nonfiction books of the year. That's amazing. That's amazing. One of the best, one of the 50 best nonfiction books of the year. So it's not even like... They didn't, the list isn't a hundred, you know, it's not super long. Greg Marshall, who we have on the show today. Yes. Um, here's a little about Greg. Greg Marshall was raised in Salt Lake City, a national endowment for the arts fellow in prose. Marshall is a graduate of the Missioner Center for Writers. His work has appeared in the best American essays and been supported by McDowell and the corporation of Yaddo. Leg is his first book. And I can't wait for his second book. Which we get a preview of at the end, where he talks about it. Sort of. A little bit. A little bit. Not really, but whatever. I'm Jason. I'm Brett. And enjoy this episode. Legisode. Legisode. I like that. Uh, (laughs) Gaze reading. Hi, Greg. He's not on yet. He's having no oh, way. Oh, good. Okay, let me see if I can. Oh, there, there we you go. are. There he is. Hello, there Greg. Hello. How's it You're going? so handsome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I like the stash. <laughs> thank you. I'm also wearing one. Yes. Thank you. I mean, Greg. I've seen what you look like, obviously, but there's something about in the flesh or in the virtual flesh. Author photos are just so hard with the facial expression and I don't know how silly or serious you want to look. So thank you. Very, you have to be very serious. So serious. We yeah. we interviewed an author. Her name is Alice Wynn. She wrote In Memoriam. Oh my God, I love that book. Great. She's also on Gay's Reading this season. I know it's a wonderful book, but her author photo, we had a whole conversation with her about it because I don't know if you, if it's of top of mind for you, but it looks like it's a turn of the century war photo. Oh my God, that's so funny. Which yeah. she's at work. She said she looks like a war bride. She totally does. I know. No, I was going to say, when you first came on, you look to me, I don't know, like high casting, that you look like you could be related to Lee Pace. Have you ever heard that before? I don't know who Lee Pace is. Pushing daisies. Foundation. Nothing? All right, I'm pulling him up. He. All right. Greg, we're off to a great start. It's like, I just want to talk about my book. Lee Pace. That's Lee Pace. Oh my God, thank Wow, this is a giant compliment. I really appreciate that. We don't even have to do this interview anymore. It's over. I know. How was your morning so far? Oh, it's been good. Just with a little Cavalier King Charles. So hanging out with him. His name is Zeus. So yeah, pretty chill. How about you guys? Good. Is he a puppy? 
he he's he's sixteen months. Oh, so he's he's, still- he's like still technically a puppy, maybe a little more of an adolescent, but yeah, he rules the roost. He's um, old enough to appear in the author bio of the book. Yes, exactly. Good close read. Look Was printed long enough ago. My I know, God. Come on. I don't mess You're... around when I interview people. Come on. Oh, you are so thorough. So not a puppy. All right. Good. Are you in Austin? How's yep, Austin today? Good. It's going to be toasty. Fortunately, we live just about 10 minutes from Barton Springs. We have been trying out our Speedos. We we bought Speedos oh. for like the first time in a long time because I was like, what is my problem with Speedos? They're comfortable. They're sexy. What's the issue here? So I just decided to go for it. And I bought Lucas, my husband, a Speedo and me a Speedo. So we've been like the Speedo brothers going to Barton Springs. Or husbands. Yes. Speedo husbands. Speedo husbands. <laughs> I just imagine you wearing them around the house, just like just wearing the Speedos. So my Speedo was actually, it turned out that mine was too small. I thought that Speedo sizes were different from waist sizes. And I got a, a 30 when I should have gotten a 32. So I was like, wow, this is like the top. Like I'm... I'm hurting a little bit here. I then realized it was And then you lip synced for your life. Exactly. (laughs) There was a wig under the Speedo that I just... uh, What what was your issue with Speedos? I think it was just that I had been on the swim team as a kid. And then that like coming of age thing where it's, oh my God, I can see your dick in this Speedo. And transitioning to like board shorts and trunks. And then re-owning it for myself as a 38 year old that's my speedo journey you just unearthed a core memory for me and i was in a production of the sound of music when i was 13 in a speedo no but the our initial little sailor outfits we had these like blue shorts on and the i was playing friedrich and the woman who was playing louisa said to me i can see your pecker and i had the meltdown and my literally my grandmother went to the place that they rented the costumes from and got me bigger shorts so that i didn't so that i it was not a thing maybe that's why i have an issue with something like jason you need to reframe that you should just look through and be like yeah you can I've, I've never, I, but I have to say, I never wore a Speedo because I think I was always so incredibly self-conscious that people would just point and laugh. Really? Jealous? No, not jealous. <laughs> I, no, I was always terrified. Who knew this is what we were talking about today? I know, we're so off track. No, right it's right. the level of self-policing that we all do as gay yeah. people is intense. And pushing past that, I met a guy who was telling me about gay naked yoga here in Austin. And I was like, because I've tried to, I don't know, I think part of the journey of the book has been becoming more body positive and just owning yeah. it a little bit more. When I was like, gay naked yoga, let's start with gay tennis, maybe? Could I join the gay tennis team first? Yeah. Gay pickleball. There you go. So anyway, I, people are just naked and in Speedos all the time, and I'm here for it. My husband also recently transitioned to being like a regular tank top wearer. Um, which has just been a journey because I'm like, I like this. It's just different. And so he has these little $13 jorts that I bought him from Marshall's that are like sprayed on and like this little Calvin Klein tank top that I bought him in Palm Springs. And we're not like fancy games at all. So I'm like, this is fashion. Like this is style. I'm blown away. And everyone else is like, this is very basic. And everyone has been wearing this since 1982. What's coming back to are the, I'm telling you, they're coming back are the, because this is me dating myself, camp circa 1983, the shorts with the piping on the sides, like the white piping, they're all coming yeah, back. White yeah, white piping and like the long tube socks. Oh my God, completely. It's wet, hot American summer all over again. I know. I'm yeah. not mad about it. Even your glasses are very, I, they're, one might call them retro, but they're also very contemporary. 
Yeah, I call them my like Jennifer Aniston table read glasses. Yes. Which just your like an actress is always donning the expensive version of these glasses for a table read. I really like it. Although I went to a stand up thing in Austin a couple months ago and my husband left to go to the bathroom and the degree of being made fun of by the stand up comic for looking like Jeffrey Dahmer, which I don't think I look like Jeffrey Dahmer at all, really. I was just like, this is a lot, and I never want to come to a stand-up thing again. But I wish you would have stood up and just had a plastic bag that looked like you had body parts inside it and just walked out. Imagine that you always had a plastic bag with you just in case for the bit. Right. Just in oh, case. That would be and you're right. like, I get to use it today, three right. years later. Not even like you fuck a backpack. You just carry around like a hefty trash bag with right. your things in it in case right. anybody asks. Yes. Wait, back to Speedos for one second. What are they actually called? We call them Kleenexes, but they're tissues. Speedo is the brand. What they're, are they? They're swim briefs. Swim briefs, swim yeah. Swim briefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I only know from recently buying one. No, of course, because it probably just said swim briefs on it. There were some generic options, but I went for name brand. It was Prime Day. Good so for you. Oh. I could I could spend the $20. <laughs> actually, yes. $17. Yeah. Where you're like, well, these are so inexpensive that I'm actually like worried. Are these cancers or what's happening here? Like, Everything yeah, is made yeah. from material that we probably shouldn't have on our bodies. But it's whatever. like H&M. You wear it twice and it's done. So yeah, yeah exactly. Know. Now I'm like, so I'm a little inspired, Greg. Jason, are, you getting your, are you getting your speedo today? People have invited me to Black Speed, which is the nude beach here. And I don't know. I'm like not quite ready for a nude beach, mm-hmm. but I would maybe wear a speedo to like start the journey. I don't know. So on your website, you say that Publishers Marketplace announcement for leg says it beautifully. The book grapples with family, disability, and coming of age in two closets as a gay man and as a man living with cerebral palsy while exploring with trenchant humor what it means to transform when there are parts of yourself you cannot change pitched in the vein of Ryan O'Connell meets David Sedaris. Do you still agree that is the best way to pitch your book? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I found it so interesting to pair queerness with disability because I think there's so much overlap there. I mean, first of all, just bodily autonomy and that those questions that we ask ourselves as gay people from the beginning about desire and how we fit into family and how we fit into kind of society at large. Mm -hmm. And I think disabled folks also have to have kind of a big tent movement. You know, people come to disability just like being gay with all kinds of different conditions and all kinds of different life experiences. And we have to band together for some kind of allyship or visibility. So I think that being gay really taught me to come out as disabled and that I really learned from that first experience to want to find community and that the visibility part was really important. The coming out part mattered, not just for me, but also for other people. Because I think one really exciting thing about both being gay and being queer is that to some extent, there are identities that we buy into, at least publicly. And so we really get to make the culture every day, every Speedo that we wear or don't wear or tie around our neck. Every time we open our mouths or walk out the door, we're inventing culture. We're making the culture for us and for everyone around us. And I think that's really exciting because it's not being gay, like being disabled, isn't necessarily like an inherited identity, like being Scots-Irish. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, my my mom is Scots-Irish, I'm Scots-Irish. 
I actually right. don't know what Scots Irish actually means. I think maybe I'm Scots Irish, but anyway, so that's what that's what was exciting about pairing those things together in ways that I hadn't seen because I don't really think that I can separate my leg from my sexuality or from my sex life or my relationships that I've had or from intimacy. So I just wanted to throw my whole body and my whole self in there to decompartmentalize my identity. And so the kind of the wink and nudge of calling the book leg is that it puts the label so forward, but the book is actually about these million different things that mm. um, my leg is the through line, but there's also, I don't know, just seeing queerness and disability as sources of intimacy, particularly right. in my family and kind of these points of connection rather than points of tension or of pain. And the way that you even just said that, I think that what the book really does, it almost, it's like a, it's like an image. And and let's say the story starts zoomed in on your leg, metaphorically. And it's like slowly panning out and slowly panning out. And we get the full picture of you as a fully realized person, but also the world around you. And I think the leg I say in quotation marks is the the entry point is the entry point. Thank you. That was exactly the phrase I was looking for. And so I think that was a really cool device that you really use to tell what is essentially a coming of age story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. First of all, queer people are obsessed with family and I'm no different from that. So many of the roles that we as gay people or even as disabled people, the ways that we're portrayed in culture are also true of how we're sometimes portrayed in families. We're the best friend. We're the sidekicks. We talk about that a lot here. Yeah, you're there to serve serve people rather than be your own person. I just had so much fun getting to be the straight man in this book, if you will, like getting to be in some ways, somebody pointed out that I'm decentered in the book, which I don't know if I know what that actually means <laughs> or agree with that. But I think that it's an interesting concept to be like, if you make the queer person just the pair of eyes and the normal the quote normal person that's casting his gaze upon his eccentric mother or his obnoxious brother or his goofy dad who is more popular than he is on a trip to France. It kind of shifts the whole idea of what it means to be queer and and who we queered in the book. I think the argument could be made that it in fact makes you even more of the center of the story because it's almost like the nucleus looking around at the world around you. You're the son. I, like you're, you are basically Jason Bateman in Arrested Development. That's what it is with a queer bent. And it's in uh, your parents. First of all, the whole, all of the family stuff is, it's so hilarious. Every character in the book, really. Yeah. It's so funny. But I really am curious because your mom, she's such a great character and your dad too, that whole sequence in France. Writing it, did you get a sense of a different sense of perspective about them as people as you're looking back? But as an adult now, do you view them differently? Oh, that's such a great question. I think that I grew up really idolizing my mom and she was my way into writing because she wrote a feature column called Silver Linings for small community newspapers. And they were such small communities that Napoleon Dynamite takes place in one of the towns where my dad owned the newspaper in Preston, (laughs) Idaho. So that's the level of rinky dink that we're talking about. He wasn't like a Murdoch or anything. These were very small communities. But the idea behind her column was that she would go into these communities and feature people who had heart transplants or needed a new liver or had beaten a brain tumor or had just had a very premature baby. 
But as time went on, the columns became more and more about her and her health struggles with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that was my kind of chance as a gay, precocious kid to insert my cringy seventh grade poetry about her losing her hair or about what a hero she was to me. So she was really someone who owned her story and really consciously crafted herself as the hero of her own story. Like there are those people who are like, I am not my cancer. But my mom was like, I am my fucking cancer. Mm -hmm. And this is what is different and special about me. And so her body was very much medicalized, but she never lost who she was in all of that. It just made her more of who she was. It gave her a stage to strut on. And so growing up, I really idolized my mom. But my dad was the quiet one behind the scenes who was the Steve Carell dad cracking jokes in the background where you're like thinking back like, well, that was actually like pretty funny what he said. And my friend Ryan O'Connell, when we were talking about my book, he said something really profound, which is, I think you always love the wrong parents when you're growing up. And I think that was so true in my experience where my mom was such a charismatic, flamboyant, larger than life character. But my dad was just this steady presence who always made me feel loved and affirmed, though I wouldn't have had the language to put it quite like that as a kid. I would have been more like, fuck you, dad. But we always, <laughs> you know, we always really loved each other and had an uncomplicated relationship with each other. And so I think it's really that love and that roadmap that he gave me. And of course, when he was diagnosed with ALS, when I was a senior in college, we were able to relate to each other, not just as father and son, but really as two disabled people and two people mm. who had their own bodily struggles. And whereas my leg had always been shoved aside and minimized, my dad with ALS was in a place where he was losing more and more abilities every day. Yeah. And it just, nothing could be compartmentalized or minimized. He was just facing death and that's what it was. And each day was the strongest he would ever be going forward in his life. And so I think that his struggles became really overt and the person that he was very much revealed to me through his empathy, through just being so game to have a gay son be a caregiver for him. And I was just a lead on the caretaking team where I was handling his uncircumcised penis and putting it in the urinal and wiping his ass and stretching his limbs and watching Lord of the Rings and Saving Private Ryan with him and and the, those things became so unremarkable and were so intimate. I guess I felt so appreciative of him that he let me be to show up as a full son, as as a gay son, as a as a person with a disability, but someone who was capable of caring for him and someone who was worthy of confiding in. And so I think that looking back, that really helped me be so much kinder to myself because mm -hmm. I felt like my full humanity had been recognized on the same level as my straight brother or my, you know, a straight big sister. In so many ways, it was unremarkable that I was gay and disabled, although those things did actually really make me a better, more capable caregiver and more empathetic. And I think that we had a dawning recognition. I think the first time that I ever really used the word, the term disabled with anyone was with my dad after he had a mucus plug he was on a respirator and so 
you clear the trachea. Occasionally there's buildup of mucus. So you have to clear it almost like a ghostbuster. You go in there with the tube and, and suck it out. And one time a piece of his respirator fell out of his throat, essentially, and he nearly died through this process. And the fire department had to be called. And I had felt so incapable and so just down on myself. Like you're standing back there in a hospital, in a bedroom, watching your dad spew blood out of his throat and you can't help them. But so anyway, he was, he was saved and we were able to unpack that situation. And I think I said something like as a disabled person, you learn what some of your physical limits are and when to step back and let the fire department take the lead in saving your dad and maybe, and maybe things that you are capable of that you didn't think you were. And so I'm just so, I go back to that moment all the time because it was really through the courage of his example, his empathy, his humor, that kind of gave me the courage to write the book. And it was like my mom had this shtick, but she was always the hero of that story. She was so resilient. She always made it. She's still alive today. And my dad was a hero in a different kind of story, a darker story, one that didn't have a silver lining, one that didn't necessarily have a tale of overcoming the odds and survivorship. So it broke the script that we'd all had as a family, but also in really beautiful ways. And all of that, I think, is very clear, too, on the page. I think your parents both come across as heroic through the lens of the word characters in your story sounds so reductive, but that gay lens at the center of the nucleus looking around, right? Those are the heroes going going on. And, and it's interesting to think that where you were able to get to with your dad, having gone on that trip abroad with him and been concerned about him asking about your sexuality. And I, Brett, I don't know if you've ever, if you ever had a similar experience, but I had a bit of a traumatic experience with my dad when I was a teenager. And then that led us to going on like an annual trip to New York together. And I'm a big theater kid and we would go see six Broadway shows in four days and really bond he in knew. that. <laughs> oh, he, Brett, he, not only did he know, we were seeing La Cajo fall and we were waiting at the stage door in freezing cold weather to get Bernadette Peters' autograph after Gypsy. Yes, that was... The funny thing is I saw La Cajo fall with my father as well. So there you go. Oh, Probably a 10-year difference. I don't know, well, unless you were five or something. No. So whatever. Uh, but I was... I distinctly remember my concerns in the hotel room. I think both hoping that he maybe does and hoping that he doesn't ask me if I'm gay or tell me that it's okay or whatever. And eventually he was, when I did come out to him, everything was totally fine. I have a tremendously more complicated relationship with him now than I did then. I think that as a concept resonated so much more than you might have even realized with, I think, yeah. a lot of people. I mean, I think that having positive examples of fathers for gay dads is just really cool and all, and letting them be supportive, but also complicated characters in, in our lives and on the page is just, I, it's a cool moment. I'm for supportive dads asking awkward questions. Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to be mindful of bringing up lived trauma, but I, I want to acknowledge that in the book, you navigate internalized ableism and homophobia really mindfully and beautifully. And I feel like whenever we talk to people who write books in a similar 
world, I can't help but ask if it was a therapeutic experience to reflect and put it all down on the page. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that it gave me the chance to, instead of being the punchline, I was making the punchlines. Yeah. And it let me really incorporate disability into my identity so much faster and really see that I was, you know, I think that I'm an asshole in the book. I think I make bad decisions in the book. I think even some booksellers who really love the book occasionally refer to it as graphic or explicit, which I think I take that as a compliment. I just take that as authentic. I was going to say, you mean you're writing the human experience in the book? Yeah, that they're, well, I think that it means that they're on board with me, but they sense danger for this character on the page and don't want that danger makes them uncomfortable. And I think that's exactly what I wanted to accomplish in telling aspects of my story, because I think that being, first of all, I think that queer people are just always going to be more susceptible to being shunned, no matter how evolved our society is. But I think that we're also more susceptible to being gaslit. And I think because I was not fully honest with myself about having cerebral palsy and the reason behind my limp, it made me ashamed of my body and like I had something to hide. And I think that shame made me feel like I didn't deserve the truth from people. And so even though maybe the lie of saying I have tight tendons versus cerebral palsy was okay in my family, once I started going out and dating people, particularly Corey and Kevin in the book, two boyfriends who tell all kinds of lies in different ways and for different reasons, not being honest with myself and not feeling like I deserved the full truth from people I was intimate with put me in a kind of danger that I wouldn't have faced otherwise. And so seeing that a danger was based on my decisions, but not entirely my fault or not entirely within my control was really therapeutic for me. One thing I really wanted to not shy away from in the book is not just my disability, not just cancer and ALS, but just this like soup of disability that we all swim in, that we try to ignore or minimize. So I really wanted to put my friend Gretchen's pacemaker and bone spur that's like a sixth toe in the book. I wanted the my high school crush John, his stutter into the book in all these big and small ways. I didn't want to just have this tunnel vision where it was like, oh, I was the only person who was ever disabled in my environment. And sometimes in the book, you asked about internalized ableism. I think one moment of that was when I was asked to go to a high school dance with the other girl in my grade who had a visible disability. She walked with the limb. And instead of being gracious about that, I freaked out and projected so many, so much self-harm and hurtful ideas about myself onto her. And I think that was really an important thing to include because I wanted to, I don't think consciously, but looking back, I wanted to break through that myth of isolation. That's the same that we confront as gay people. I'm the only one. There's no one like me. Even in my high school, there were other kids who were closeted. And so I think that there's just an interesting tension in the book and in our lives where external ableism or prejudice does get internalized. And how do we, how do we, you know, how do we metabolize our own oppression and what do we eventually shit out? 
is it literary gold? No, but yeah. it's, yeah, you want to, yeah, I think that acknowledging both the external and internal factors are important because it wasn't like I grew up in a world with just internalized ableism and homophobia. That's not the world that we live in either. Right. It was a world where some of the inputs coming in were not, were not super supportive. And so I think showing both sides of that dynamic were important to me. Yeah. And I think that part of that is just implicating myself in some of the oppression and prejudice that I faced. Because I think that often as a gay person and a disabled person, I can be my own worst enemy, the negative self-talk, especially before I found out about CP. And I just would be like, God, why have I lost my car in the parking lot again? This is just ridiculous. Or little things. I remember when I worked as a journalist at a community newspaper in Park City, I once asked my my editor, my boss, if I could, if the paper would buy me a $20 headset so that I could type with both hands when I was on the phone doing interviews. And she was like, no, we can't possibly afford $20. And I really liked this editor and she was a good advocate for me. But you're just, yeah, I guess just a small example of when your boss is telling you that you start to dismiss your need for it in the first place. And you start to go, all these other reporters don't have headsets and don't need even the slightest accommodation. So what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And I think having a label like cerebral palsy gave me not just distance from my experience to write about it, but it just, it made me kinder to myself. It just made me really like when, I don't know, I've had experiences meeting younger kids who are interns and I'm sort of like, oh, you are just as stupid and bad at this as I was. And it makes me feel kinder and more generous to myself and to the intern that I had been back then. So I think there was a little bit of that where I got to see, I got to see my own life from a hundred feet up. And I was like, yeah, you know, on balance, I didn't do so bad. And with much less information that like currently young people coming into all of this have computers in their hands all day or just things that are available to them that weren't then. Not that I'm making you sound like you're when you pull up in your horse and buggy, it's not that, but it's just, it is a different, it is a different thing. It's a different time. Oh, and I think that we also like both, I think in the Corey era, it was still gay.com that I was using. And before that, <laughs> I it got been that like, and I was like, look at you gay.com. <laughs> yeah. And before that, it was like manhunt.net. And I think there were just, you know, we took more risks at gay people back then because that's just how you mm-hmm. hooked up with people mm-hmm. and that's how you met people and, um, and how you learned about yourself. Yeah. It's okay to take the bumpers off and get in some trouble and, and hopefully be safe and have friends who are looking out for you and that kind of thing. But I think, I, I think as a disabled person, I sometimes felt like the world wasn't mine to wander. And in this book, but in my life, I think I was determined to be brave. I know that sounds corny, but I was determined to explore when I could. And I think that a huge part of that for me was exploring sexually and having relationships. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and it's Salt Lake is such a spinster culture and that kind of in a unisex fashion, like, you know, if you're 19 or 20 or 21 and you don't fit the mold perfectly and you're not already engaged to a return missionary, you're out. You're like an old maid. And I'd seen people in my world just be left behind and not get to live the full human experience that I had that I 
wanted for myself. And so I think it, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I was so determined to come out when I did. And one of the reasons why, you know, I got myself into some hairy situations at times because I didn't want to die alone. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to date and fuck and be silly and have adventures and move to LA just like other people were, you know, and have a job in Germany. I didn't want to, I was just so ready to take the bubble wrap off because I felt like I'd been so sheltered. Partially I'd sheltered myself, but I'd been so sheltered as a younger kid that I didn't want to be an up with kids, choir kid my whole life, just singing Disney tunes. I wanted to sing Disney tunes with the cock in my which is tricky. A whole new world. <laughs> right. And right there is the trailer for this episode. I wanted oh, to sing man. Disney songs with the cock in my mouth. Something that I was very aware of in reading this and you just generally, just your sense of humor. And mm-hmm. I, do you feel that was always with you? That's not something that just gets developed. Sure, it gets sharpened as we go along. But did you find that for you as a, a particular a survival tool, so to speak, in terms of getting through stuff, in terms of how you lensed the world and what was going on around you? And yourself. Yeah, you know, well, I think I was so tremblingly oversensitive for my entire life. And it took me a while. I think I was always good natured, but it took a while for the good naturedness to curdle into irony and mockery and humor. And I think one thing I've noticed that's really interesting about publishing a memoir versus being a funny gay person smoking a cigarette in the corner is that a memoir is just so mainstream and earnest and it's the opposite of camp in a way it's the opposite of innuendo and suggestion i think at least i found when writing the book well you know you need the topic sentence and it has to be written in ink on paper i think that as the as a gay person i was so much more used to and so much more comfortable with shape-shifting and code switching and like reinventing myself and being a different person for each friend that I have in my life. Now you guys are going to be like, okay, you are Jeffrey Dahmer. Wow, this, this <laughs> is a psychopath. That's for talking. Lifts bag in the air. <laughs> yeah, the head is right here. But I think, I guess I mean that in a subtle, nuanced way where we're, we all, as gay people, change our tone. We, we just, we know how to read people mm-hmm. because we're so yeah. aware from the jump of how we're being perceived. And I think one thing that was a little scary about having a memoir is that it can't shape shift. It just is what it is. Mm. And you have to, by nature, take up space. And I think, especially in a family with a lot of other big personalities, but just any family, that can be a little bit of an adjustment for other members of the family as well. And an adjustment for yourself to be like, okay, I'm not just going to like slither around and accommodate and make little quips here and there. In some ways, I saw the book as a correction of the record. The, the book begins with a little excerpt from my mom's column where she point blank says, Greg does not have cerebral palsy. And so I took that, that kind of made me see the book as I'm correcting the record for myself and telling a version of the story that actually has me in it. Me as a gay person, me as a disabled person. And you central yeah, in the story. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, but it is, yeah, gay humor is, is just, in some ways, it's just like the air we all breathe and not just of gay people. I just think mm-hmm. we were the funny ones from the very beginning. And my husband is Jewish. I think that the, the Jewish people were also had some good, like 
elbowing and quips going on in there too. Yes, um, we do. Uh, one thing that you mentioned in your acknowledgments is you thank some people for helping you rediscover your sense of joy in creation. And I just wonder if you can simplify how you do that or how you did that. I think a lot of people are struggling with rediscovering joy right now. Yeah. I think there's so much rejection that we all face, you know, doing anything in life. The book, you know, publishing the book, it was almost like meta because I was, you know, facing all of this rejection, not anymore in some ways than most books go through. You know, you're still getting feedback on your identity and on your creative output and it can feel tough. There's a lot incoming. And so I think just really enjoying the process for what it is was and really getting to have conversations with people like the book allowed me to interview family members and talk Mm -hmm. to them about really profound, difficult things and also silly things that that was really important. I don't know, I guess it's I, I would say that I'm an extrovert, but that that writing this book gave me the perfect outlet to reach out to people and to swap stories with them or to give notes back and forth. And so that I think that's where that joy came from. I love that. This is so random, but I had to commiserate with you because I also know the pains of Accutane lips. And that picture I'm, of me and Bernadette Peters, I have my Accutane lips and ooh, it's... <laughs> it's God's lipstick. Oh. It's painful. I feel so mixed about Accutane. I think, were you a kid who needed to go on Accutane? Or were Probably you a kid not. Who want- yeah. Because I, I think like 95% of us just wanted to go on Accutane. Yeah. And, and I don't regret it at all, but it does change the feeling of the pores in your face. I don't even think I realized that. I feel like it does. I'm also a, a giant hypochondriac. Oh, so am I. Well, and unlike any pain in my joint or my this or my that or whatever, I'm like, maybe I'm dying. Or is this because of the Accutane from 20 years ago? So. Yeah. No, like we, we sold our souls. I know we really did. For sure. I, Greg, I also learned from you that, so you go on to tell your husband, Lucas, who's Jewish, that he's been wrong about the lyrics of Silent Night this whole time. And (laughs) I also was wrong about them until yesterday. I read this in your book and was like, oh, I had no idea what the lyrics of Silent Night were until (laughs) right now. I thought, I 100% thought it was round young virgin. And it is round yon virgin. Yes, like round the yon. virgin. Yes, is the virgin over, over there. Yonder. The way you described it was good for me. And I did grow up with it, but having it broken down and saying, no, the virgin yon over there. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was just words at the time growing up in church. That's all that was. So the book <laughs> is deep and meaningful and thoughtful it's and really educational. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Teaches the correct lyrics of Silent Night. That's exactly right. Selfishly, before we let you go, are you working on anything? Are you working on fiction? Is there stuff that we could read in the future? I'd love to get back to fiction. I was just making fun of people for having diaries. But my <laughs> my husband and I are in the process of hiring a surrogate and trying to have a kid. So right now on my computer, I have a document called The Sperm Diary. It's like the early parts of that process. So I yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there are so many... I don't know. I think dad stuff is cringy. So I'm like, I wonder if there's a way to do this. Maybe more of a disability angle. I don't know. Maybe there's a way to do this that would be not cringy. But yeah, I don't know. I haven't fully launched into anything else. I will say, I think your background in fiction is what made the memoir so readable. So I think while it might not have been fiction, I think the it's the infusion of 
that part of your world was clear. So thank you. Thank you. That's really encouraging. Well, I'm excited for you to have a new book out so we could talk to you again and we could talk about musical. We didn't talk about musicals at all, which is a shame. I feel like the list is still so long. Seriously. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you guys so much. This was such a pleasure and I'll keep listening to your podcast and and stay in touch. This was so fun. Yeah, it was great talking to you guys. Greg Marshall, thank you so much for being here. Greg's book, Leg, will be available in our bookshops.org page, which you could find the link to in our show notes. If you like what you're hearing, like us, review us, share us with your friends. Five stars wherever you listen to your podcast really helps with the algorithm, and we are super grateful for that. And you know, the holidays are coming, and we have a lot of great merchandise. Our link is below to our merchandise store where you can get shirts and buttons and all kinds of stuff. I know, and sweatshirts, when it gets cold out. And yeah. I'm, I'm drinking coffee out of my gay reader mug right now. Look at you. You're feeling sweater weather. I'm feeling my sweater weather. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.